Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And while you're looking up Hebrews 11, if you'd also keep going in your Bible, you don't have to do this because I'm going to read it to you. But if you want to find out what I'm reading, keep going till you get to 2 Peter. So after Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter. And then we're looking at the chapter, third chapter. I want to read 2 Peter first, or 2 Peter first. It's 2 Peter in England and 2 Peter here, so that's your education for today. Let me read from 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same Word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then our text for today Hebrews 11, and you will see instinctually the connection between these two texts. By faith Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Our Father, we 
confess that there are parts of the, your word that are harder to grasp than others. And so we pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that he would open the word of Christ before our eyes, and that you, Father, would take great glory to yourself by the proclamation of your word today. Amen. Well, perhaps one of the greatest challenges facing Christian people in the world today is the challenge of being different without being weird. I know that, I know what you're thinking. That's going to be easier for some people than for others. I, I realize that. Uh, some of us worry about being odd or appearing odd in the eyes of other people, while others of us obviously aren't worried and are quite happy just to sail along and be what we are. But to be serious, because there is a serious side to this, and to be very honest about it, the reality is that the world as it's emerging, I mean the world that we are familiar with, the, the culture in which we are increasingly finding ourselves here in, in America, is such a culture that the reality is that simply believing, simply believing God, simply believing in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is in itself sufficient to make you appear odd and weird in the eyes of the world, and that not in a good way. That's the bottom line, and that's the bottom line as we come to look at the story now of Noah. We, we looked at the background to Noah's life last time, but now we're looking more closely at Noah's story as it's narrated here in verse 7 of Hebrews 11. Because Noah stood out in bold contrast to the culture and values of the days in which he lived. His whole life had what we might call a prophetic element to it, alerting not only the people of his own day, but as we saw from, from the, the chapter in Hebrew, Peter that we read, alerting us to our day and to the purposes of God for the world and for the future, not only Noah's future, but our future as well. And so it's with that prophetic sense that I want to look at this verse and to note with you the prophetic word, the prophetic act, and the prophetic impact of Noah's life. First of all, the prophetic word. Look with me at the text. By faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen. That word warning is a technical word. It's found elsewhere in the Bible. Wherever it's found, it always refers to a divine oracle or a divine message, sometimes with the element of warning, but always with the element of it being God's Word and God's revelation to people. So, for example, it be, can be, it's used of, of a direct act of the Holy Spirit inspiring someone. So, in the birth narratives of Jesus, in Luke's gospel, we read about a man called Simeon who met the baby Jesus when he was brought to the temple a few days old, and it was revealed, it says, it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the, Lord Christ, the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. 
Sometimes the word used here is used of the ministry of angels, as when Cornelius, the Roman officer, was directed by a holy angel to send for the apostle Peter to come to his house and to listen to what he, Peter, had to say. Sometimes the Holy Spirit uses dreams. Uh, So, with the wise men. You remember the wise men who brought their gifts to Jesus? And they went by way of Jerusalem and alerted King Herod to the arrival of the Lord's Messiah. And uh, an angel appeared to them in a dream. And in this dream, they were told not to go back via Jerusalem, but to take the expressway back to Babylon where they came from. Or there's the story of Elijah, who hears the direct Word of God, an immediate voice from God, as it were, as do the people who are gathered around the River Jordan when Jesus is baptized. So, it's a word that denotes divine revelation, and here's what it teaches us. It teaches us, first of all, that divine revelation always comes by divine initiative. So, when the Apostle Peter is reflecting on divine revelation, he says in in one of his letters, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. What he means by that is no prophet ever sat down and thought, I'm going to get a prophetic word this morning. That's what ministers dream of, sitting down on Monday morning at your desk and thinking, right, Lord, give me the the word now. So, we can kind of a shortcut so that we get to, get to the heart of it for the people next Sunday. Would you give me the word right now? Well, I can say that till I'm blue in the face and it won't happen. I've got to read the Bible. I've got to read the commentaries. I've got to do the, the work. And, and even then, you, it doesn't always happen that it comes together until the very last moment and often in the very act of preaching itself. No prophecy ever came by the will of man. But holy men of God, it says were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit, like, like boats on a river, like one of these little paper boats you make for a child, and you put it in the river, and off it is swept, swept along in the current by the Holy Spirit. The prophets were given the words to speak to men and women. Divine revelation comes always by divine initiative. And divine revelation always opens a door to the divine nature. You get an insight into the nature of God. And we do that in this, in this verse that we're looking at this morning. In this verse, we're told that by faith, Noah was warned by God. The, the emphasis of the revelation on this occasion is that of warning. It's a warning of what? Well, it's a warning of the great flood. Spent time thinking about the flood last week, so if you didn't get to hear it, you can listen to it online. But, but we were thinking of the, the flood that occurred in Noah's day that destroyed the civilization that there was at that time in history. By faith, Noah was warned of God. A whole 120 years before it happened, God told Noah about it. Now, that warning of God was an indicator. It told us something about God. It told us something about the gracious nature of God, because God warns Noah so that Noah can warn the world. 
God communicates, reveals himself to Noah so that Noah, who is a preacher, can proclaim to the world what God has told him. Now, this is, this is interesting, that when God reveals to Noah this warning, it is quite in contrast to other occasions where God comes to refresh His people, for example. In, we're studying Song of Solomon on Sunday evenings. In the song, chapter 2 and verse 8, it talks about when God comes to refresh and renew His own people, His own beloved people. We're told that He comes skipping over the mountains. He can't get there quick enough to come to His people. In the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son comes to his senses and goes back to his father, his father sees him from a distance. And though he's a nobleman, and it's against the climate and culture to do this, when he sees his son coming, what does the nobleman do? He runs to meet him. He runs to embrace him. Whenever God is pleased to act towards His people in love and mercy and, and to bring refreshment and encouragement to His people, He cannot get there fast enough. But whenever there is judgment, God drags His feet. He drags His feet. In this story, for example, it takes 120 years to build the ark. And when the day comes for the judgment to fall, the people are given another week, another seven days. And when the judgment begins to fall, it takes 40 days until the flood, the flooding has built up to the levels where it's actually inundating human life. God is putting it off, as it were. He is, it's not so much reluctance as grace. He made the world in six days, for goodness sake, but He delays the judgment for 120 years, and then another week, and then gives 40 days while the rain falls. And during those 40 days, the ark is bobbing up and down as a means of escape and a way of salvation and the opportunity for the people who are drowning to call out and to find rescue if they want it. When God warns, when God threatens, it is to allow room for a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction. If this is the first time you're hearing the warnings of God from the Bible this morning, God is giving them to you to give you an opportunity to respond to them and to respond to Him. Divine revelation always comes by divine initiative, always reflects the divine nature, and is always given to God's holy prophets. God lets His people know what He is about. This is what we read in Psalm 25, the secret counsel of the Lord is for them that fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. God delights to tell His own people what He is about, what He is doing. That's why when we gather together on Sunday for the ministry of the Word of God, God is pleased to tell us from His Word what He is about in the world. 
So when he was about to send judgment on the cities, Sodom and Gomorrah and so on, he comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham what he's going to do. In fact, he says this, shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I'm going to do? It's as if God is saying, the very idea of concealing what I'm about to do to my people, to those that I love, would be a breach of friendship with them. And so it is with all God's people. For the prophets are preachers and heralds and messengers to the people of God. And it says in Amos chapter 3, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing it to His servants, the prophets. God reveals Himself to His servants, the prophets, for our sake, for our sake, because the work of the prophet is to proclaim the revealed message of God to the people of God and to the world. That was Noah's day job. He was a preacher of righteousness, we're told, in the New Testament. He occupied the office of a prophet. And today in the church, though we have no prophets, we have a prophetic office in the church today, and that is the office of the Word of God. God's ministers do what prophets did in that they herald the message. They proclaim the message. They tell the message. They warn men and women. They proclaim war against the world and they offer the world the terms of peace. This is how the world may have peace with God. This is how the crisis can be averted. This is how men and women, boys and girls, may have a right relationship with God. And in the church, the offices of Christ are reflected in the leadership of the church, in the session which as a body rules the church in Jesus' behalf, in the diaconate, which serves the church as Jesus served the church as a priest, and in the preaching of the Word, where Christ as prophetic office is reflected in the proclamation of the Word to the people. Here's what we read in Jeremiah 18. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way. That's a good verse for this morning, because though I, I'm not speaking to the people before the flood, I'm speaking to the people after the flood. I'm speaking to the people before the fire. We, we read about the fire that's coming. We read about the day, as the Apostle Peter puts it, uh, when the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That is the next item on God's agenda. That is the next thing that is going to happen. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, it will mark the end of history as we know it. It will mark the end of the world as we know it. The fire of God's holy presence will come, and the fire of God's presence is a consuming fire. And the work of the preacher, the work of the church through its preachers is to proclaim that this is going to happen and to call men and women to respond to the gracious, loving God who tells you beforehand what He is going to do, so that you might turn and repent. This warning then came to Moses, to Noah rather, as a special revelation of God, and he received it by faith, not by reason, 
Uh, what we know about God, what we know about what God's doing, we don't know by reason, first of all. That's knowledge and opinion. But by faith, our reason is engaged with divine revelation. And this revelation has come at various times in various ways to our fathers, through the prophets. And these last days, we have it in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, divine revelation always unveils the divine mysteries. What does it reveal? Look again at verse 7. It reveals events as yet unseen. We find that word used, the idea of this used earlier in chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There it was considered absolutely with relation to God. God's invisible. There's a whole spiritual realm that we don't see. It's invisible to our creaturely eye, but it's nonetheless real. But here it's events that have not taken place yet. The people of Noah's day had never seen a boat. What's a boat, Noah? Well, it's a thing that floats on water. On water, Noah. This is a very, very big boat you're building. And there's no water, right? I don't know if you've noticed this, Noah. But there's no water here for us. I mean, it would take weeks to get to water enough for a boat this size. And anyway, what do you need a boat for in the middle of the desert, Noah? You can imagine the kind of things that Noah was having to put up with. They'd never seen an ark. And they'd never seen a flood. Oh, it might rain a lot. No, it might rain a lot, but look at the mountains around here. I mean, they're really, really high. We can go up the mountain and wait till the rain stops and then come back down again when the thing subsides. Nobody had ever seen a flood before. In other words, the message that Noah was sent to proclaim separated him, put him at an infinite distance from the culture in which he lived because the people he's talking to had never seen the things that he was telling them about. They could not conceive of those things. And when one is given the conviction of things not seen, one is often considered a fool or extremely arrogant. We give the scorners something to scorn and scoff at. We read about that, didn't we, in, in, uh, in Second Peter chapter 3, that, that in the latter days, People will be scornful. They will mock. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? You've been talking about this second coming of of Jesus Christ for over 2,000 years, you Christians. He hasn't come back yet. You've been talking about the final judgment. There's been no final judgment yet. And the scorners and the humorists will have lots of material whenever we embrace the prophetic word. But the second thing we notice about Noah here is the prophetic act. Noah, we're told, was moved with godly fear. Here we see faith in act. His believing the word of God had this effect on him. He feared. Now, we have to distinguish what kind of fear we're talking about here. This is not anxious, nervous fear. 
kind of fear you have when you go into an environment where you're unfamiliar and you're afraid of what people are thinking of you. You're afraid that you haven't dressed appropriately or you don't have enough information for this meeting that you're supposed to be addressing and so on. That's kind of natural stuff. Some of us are more worried and anxious than others and so on. That's not what we're talking about this morning. This is the fear of God. This is the fear of those who have considered the holiness of God. That God is not just a little bit holy, He is absolutely holy. This is the holiness of God that shook the temple in Isaiah 6 and had the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory, and had the prophet of God shaking in his shoes along with the threshold of the temple because God's holiness, if I am unholy, will lead to the disintegration of me. Once you consider the holiness of God, or the power of God, the power by which He made out of nothing everything that there is, you have a healthy fear, a healthy fear of God, a godly fear. And Noah was driven by godly fear, like the Lord Jesus. Back in Hebrews chapter 5, we're told about Him, that He, in His human nature, His human nature, was heard when he prayed. He was heard in that he feared. The Lord Jesus Christ had a healthy, godly fear of God. In other words, he had a healthy, godly fear of himself and his divine nature as a human being. The early Christians, were told in Acts 9, walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And here we're told that Noah, in reverent fear, constructed the ark. What he believed about God led him in the path of duty. He gathered the materials. He employed the craftsmen. He supervised the building. He completed the task after 120 years. And he did all this having been moved by reverential fear of God. I'll say two things about fear. The fear of God guards our hearts. Fear of God is a complement to the love of God. It says in Hosea 3, they shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. In other words, fearing God and Understanding His goodness are not incompatible. When you really know God as God, God as He is in Himself, and you know that God as He is in Himself is good and that all that's good in God is God, then you fear Him. You're reverent, reverential towards Him. That's a healthy fear. It's a good thing. Uh, even when Paul's writing to the Philippians, he, he talks about Christian people, and he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You ever read those words? What's he talking about? Salvation. Your salvation. You already have it. But he's saying, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. In other words, nothing's going to move the salvation. Nothing's going to take away from your salvation. That is secured. It is your salvation. And the business of the Christian life is then taking what we have and working it out with fear and trembling. 
The fear of God guards our hearts. And the fear of God galvanizes our faith. Every good fear arises from faith and ends in duty. Thomas Manton, Puritan author, puts it like this, if Noah had not believed, he had not never feared. If he had not feared, he had never prepared the ark. One led to the other. And building the ark required long-term patience, persistence, and perspiration. And while he's building the ark, he's all the time preaching. Takes time off doing the building to go and preach and tell people what he's doing and why he's doing it. He's explaining the gospel. Explaining the good news means or involves you in telling people the bad news. This is the bad news. This flood's coming. Here's the good news. I'm building an ark. It's a big ark. You can join me on the ark. You can can come with me on the ark. God's got me telling you this so that you have the opportunity to repent and to turn and to change direction and to come in God's terms to Himself. And all the time they did not return. They scoffed at Noah. They mocked at Noah. They strove with the Spirit of Christ that was with them through the preaching of God's servant. And just like they did, So says the Apostle Peter in the last days, scoffers will come saying, where is the promise of His coming? Their scorn, their unwillingness to listen, their refusal to repent, their contempt for the preacher did not discourage Noah, did not weaken his resolve. He did his duty because he was moved by fear of the Lord. And what is appalling about the story of Noah is that this close to Adam, this close to the Garden of Eden, people would still be able to tell you where the Garden of Eden was. This close to the promises that had been made, people would not believe. I read, I read something earlier this morning, an account of the state of Christianity in the world, and it was a flattened out map of the world. And in the Northern Hemisphere, Christianity is diminishing. The numbers of converts effectively are a trickle. Whereas in the Southern Hemisphere, right across the map, and going up in China, into China this way. It was all read in these areas. Converts are coming into the church in massive numbers. The work of God is going apace. South America, Africa, Asia. And after I looked at that and read that little piece, I picked up John Owen, and here's what John Owen said. When the preaching of righteousness loses its efficacy in the conversion of sinners, it is a token 
of approaching desolations. In a period or in a place where the preaching of the same gospel, which used to convert people, is no longer converting people, where people are hardening their hearts against the gospel, it is a token, says Owen, of approaching desolation. Here's what Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? And that is a disturbing thought, isn't it? Here's what Paul said, time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Noah was moved by fear, prophetic act. He built the ark. Then thirdly, (coughs) the prophetic impact. Noah's faithful ministry over those 120 years did not ratchet up dozens, hundreds, or thousands of likes on Facebook. Did not the records, the blogs about his ministry, did not acquire significant views. Nobody loved his Twitter account. He did not build a mega church, although he did build a mega boat. And yet his ministry, we're told in this verse, had a prophetic impact. Noah built an ark, it says, to the saving of his own household. That includes his wife, his three sons, and their wives. God, in His sovereign mercy and grace, would preserve and defend and deliver this family. God would do it for His glory and for their good, and He would do it for our sake. Because in preserving and defending this family, He was preserving the line from which the Savior of the world would come. So he's doing it for our sakes as well. And it was because of Noah and his faith and Noah and his ark that there are people today all around the world who are calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did God love Noah's family? Yes. Were they better than all the other families? Absolutely not. Did God love these people who would perish? Yes, he did. God so loves the world. In the text that we read from Peter, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, in His human nature, He wept real tears over those people's rejection of Him as their Messiah and as their Lord. And as Noah preached, the ark was a sacrament of the salvation that he offered people. It was a sign and a seal of God's promise to save him and his household and anyone who would call in the name of the Lord. The ark must have been an unlikely thing. I mean, people could have said, how is an ark going to save you? I mean, the minute it rises up, 
you can hear the scientists would be telling him, the minute, the minute the waves get up and it lifts it up, you know you've got no means of navigation. There's no steering wheel. There's no means of propulsion. It's just going to bob around and be the mercy of the waves. And there are mountain peaks and there are hills and there are rocks and you'll be dashed against these and destroyed. It wasn't the ark that saved them, you see. It was God who saved them. The ark was the outward sign and seal of that salvation. And the gospel sacraments seem similarly flimsy. Baptism, a little common water, and yet it is a sign and seal of God's promises to save believers and their children. This idea of family baptism, of family salvation is as old as the Bible itself. It's the way God chooses to work. He chooses to work with believers and their children. Some of you who are believers today have no idea that your great-great-great-grandparents were believers. And the reason that you're a believer today is that they believed in God, and God kept His promise to them through you coming to faith today. And baptism is the sign and seal. <clears throat> it doesn't save you. But in the, on the other hand, what it points to saves you. What it represents saves you. Christ saves you. And baptism points to Christ. Listen to what Peter says, very controversially in 1 Peter chapter 3. Listen to what he says. The ark in which a few... That is, eight persons were saved by water. Baptism corresponds to this, and it now saves you. In other words, what it, what it points to saves you. So that there is no salvation outside of the church. God works through a church to bring men and women into relationship with Himself. And as we baptize our families, we take seriously the promise that God has made to us. Acts 2, this promise is for you and your children, and to as many as the Lord your God shall call. So we bring our children with us into the ark that is the church that represents Christ, who is our Savior, our only Savior, and our Lord. And the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper consists in some wine and some bread, and yet is the means by which God communicates His grace to His believing people. Because of the Word. It's the Word spoken at baptism. It's the Word spoken at the Lord's Supper. It is the Word of God by means of which God saves those who believe. And as the earth came under the judgment of God, God preserved a church, a remnant, this family. It was a temporal deliverance. The ark was only a figure of the spiritual deliverance that there is in Christ. But just as there was no salvation outside the ark, there is no salvation outside of Christ. I need to know this this morning. You may, may be from a different religious background or no religious background. I need to make this absolutely clear. There is no salvation. When the fire falls, 
there is no salvation, for neither is there salvation in any other, the Bible says. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All Noah's children benefited. They were blessed through their believing parents. Even Ham, one of his sons, who wasn't a believer, was blessed. Just as our children, whether they're believers or not, are enlightened, they taste the heavenly gift, they share in the Holy Spirit as He works amongst us, they taste of the goodness of the Word of God as they hear it preached and taught. These are the signs of God's promises. And even those who don't come to faith benefit from those things. Noah built an ark for the salvation of his family. Noah condemned the world. How did he condemn the world? By his preaching. He was a preacher of righteousness. He called the people of the world back to God. He pointed to the salvation that was available to them. But the very offer of salvation, when it is rejected, is a sentence pronounced over the world. It is part of the weight of preaching that one knows that when we preach the Word of God, it is a smell of death to some, as well as a smell of life to others. If, if you understand this, then on the day of judgment, the day of judgment, men and women, brothers and sisters, on the day of judgment, you will not be able to say to God, you were not told of the coming judgment. Among other things that you've experienced in your life, he will recall this sermon and these words. You were told that day, as clearly as that guy could tell you, it is appointed unto men to die once and after death, judgment, and that there is coming a day when God will destroy the world with fire as surely as He destroyed it with a flood. And you cannot say, we've never seen this happen before. That's what Peter says there in First Peter, in Second Peter chapter 3. He said, these people who say everything is going on the way it always has are forgetting something. There was a point where things did not go on as they always had. When the flood came, and they need to remember that just as the Word of God, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, by the same Word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. That's where we're going. Noah preached that to the people of his own day. Hear what it says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You won't be expecting it suddenly, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and destroyed, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed, consumed by the fire of God's holiness. And you're being told today, and what you're being told today is a word of gracious warning from God to you. But if you reject it, it's a word of con con condemnation. 
It's a word of condemnation. Noah, thirdly, became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. You know, the thing about an heir is that an heir does not work for anything that he has left. Anything that comes to an heir is something someone else has worked for, something someone else has provided. And salvation, the righteousness, the right standing with God that we are given, we're given as heirs of something we did not work for, that Christ worked for on our behalf. By His blood and His righteousness, we're given the gift of an inheritance. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ of all that God gives of Himself to His people. Well, as we read the story of the flood, we look forward to what's coming, and in the moment, this moment, let me be Noah to you. Let me point you to the ark, Christ. Let me say to you that all who are in Him are secure for time and eternity. All who are in Christ will not be hurt by the second death, which is eternal death. All who are in Christ will be saved when the fire falls. All who are in Christ will never, ever be separated from the love of God. That is in Christ. All who are in Christ will never, ever be condemned. Trust in Him. Father, we pray that You would please alarm us, comfort us, direct us, but will You bring us all in this room to the lovely Lord Jesus, the lovely Lord Jesus who is our salvation, our security, our satisfaction our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.